world that just is so evident and bombards us every day. I've had a lot of conversations in the past uh, years, and, and it seems like they're ramping up. Sometimes those conversations uh, have to do with people who are struggling with even making any sense of faith at all. Literally, in the past two weeks, days apart, in my work as chaplain at the hospital, I had two Vietnam vets say to me, when I asked them the question, tell me a little about your own, if you have a religious or spiritual background. They both said almost the same thing, something like this. I was raised in such and such tradition, but I lost my religion in Vietnam. And for them, the idea of any kind of personal or good God seemed absolutely irreconcilable with the horrors of war that they experienced personally and those all around them and the people that they lost. But I'm finding something else. I find that very often in conversations with people who would say, well, I've been living out, uh, seeking to follow uh, Christ, I have a clear sense of my faith, and I've been doing that for years, but I'm really struggling right now. I'm struggling with what I'm going through and making sense of it. God seems so far away. I'm having doubts like I've never had before. And it's almost like they were hesitant to even bring up the fact because the very reality of having doubts and questions was adding to their angst. Do you know what I mean? Do you struggle with the question of suffering, of making sense of suffering? We are in a series here, a very important series uh, that's built around this repeated word in the New Testament that is translated with our English words, one another. As we live together in a community, as we go out and touch the people within our spheres of, of influence, how do we care for one another and love one another? And last week we, we, I introduced this word of attending to one another. How do we really pay attention to the stories how do we treat the people around us as the beloved, sacred image of God bearing people that they are? So, today, what I'd like to do is to look at this one another idea around the specific question of how do we care for one another in the midst of pain and suffering? I don't know if you noticed, maybe we could put the first part of that scripture up again from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, if you noticed a repeated word, the repeated word here is, is comfort. It's like six times in the opening paragraph of Paul's, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. The word comfort uh, in different translations is, is used differently. Sometimes uh, the word encouragement is used, consolation. Council. It's one of those words in the Greek, original Greek language of the New Testament that really can't be translated by just one English word. The word is parakletos, that's the family of words, and it's interestingly the same word that Jesus used when he announced to his disciples that he would be going back to the Father but would send them the Holy Spirit, God's 
Spirit who would be a helper to them, who would literally, the word means, come alongside to help. And so it's been translated different ways. For example, Eugene Peterson uh, wrote a paraphrase of the, of the Bible called The Message. Here's, here's his paraphrase, and he picks up the nuances of this word. Let me read it for you. All praise to the God and Father of our Master, Jesus the Messiah, Father of mercy, God of all healing counsel. These are all the same word, but he's using different translations. He comes alongside us when we go through hard times. And before you know it, he brings us alongside someone else who's going through hard times so that we can be there for that person just as God was there for us. All of those are comfort words translated in slightly different ways. This letter of the Apostle Paul's is one of his most intensely personal and brutally honest of the writings of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul himself was going through some serious affliction, not only bodily and, and just circumstantially, but also there was organized opposition to his authority as an apostle. And so in chapter 4, he's summarizing some of the things he's going through, and he uses this phrase, say, we, we are vessels of clay, so that the surpassing power can be seen as coming from God and not ourselves. And then he ends it with these words. So we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction, he's using that phrase for his affliction, relatively it's a slight momentary affliction, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because he's describing that there's an eternity ahead. Now, I often say about his, his verse, outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed. It's almost as though our lives have two graphs, okay? Without even knowing you, guess what? I can draw your body graph, okay? Here's your body graph, okay? So it goes like this. You, you're about 21, and then, and then basically, you know. I hate to break it to you, but, but that's, we are wasting away. Some faster than others, sometimes there's trauma, sometimes there's simply the, the gradual, but, but we are, our bodies are fading, as it were, okay? But you know what he says? He says, your spirit graph has all the potential in the world to continually be renewed. You can be renewed spiritually. So here's the point. The Apostle Paul is making a clear statement that physical or spiritual or any kind of affliction, suffering that we go through, is not incompatible with spiritual growth. Suffering is not incompatible with spiritual growth. Okay, keep that, keep that in mind. Let me show you a picture. Anyone know who this is? Anybody know? A few of you. This is Johnny Erickson Tada. Uh, Johnny Erickson, uh, as she was born, um, I feel in some ways a, an affinity with Johnny. I never met her, but we are the same age, and I followed her journey as an 18-year-old swimmer. She had a diving accident that left her paralyzed from the neck down. Now Johnny obviously had to wrestle with the implications of that 
She was a follower of Christ. She was deeply committed to Christ. But this obviously turned her world totally upside down. But Johnny, as we speak, has now written 50 books. A film was made of her life, a best-selling book about her story. She has spoken and continues to speak all around the world. She started an organization called Johnny and Friends, which advocates and cares for people with disabilities. She has a daily radio program. And, and literally, she has flourished beyond what we could imagine. Although, it has not, by any means, been easy. She is not only a committed follower of Christ, she is extremely honest about her journey. And in those first two or three years, she describes in her biography how intensely depressed she became, how the doubts came rolling in, the questions of why, all of those things that we totally could understand or not fully understand that she was going through. And actually, she, she made a comment about the verses that I just read, where Paul says, this light momentary affliction, and outwardly we're wasting away, and inwardly we're being renewed. Here's what she said. She said, there's a nonchalance about those words that used to drive me crazy. This gut-wrenching suffering that I'm experiencing stuck in a wheelchair. Lord, how can I see these as light and momentary? I will never walk or run again. I will never use my hands. By the way, she taught herself how to draw incredible paintings using a paintbrush in her mouth. She says, maybe, Lord, you see this as leading to future glory, but all I see is a trapped life in this stinking wheelchair. That's how she was feeling in those first few years. Somewhere after first few years, she embarked on what has become a lifetime of study, of writing, of wrestling with this question of how do we make sense? How do we navigate life in the midst of the real pain and suffering that we go through? In that process, she began to, to see a different perspective on suffering and how she could navigate it. She came to see that God was growing her to become more like Christ, that, that God was giving her insight into suffering that she was never even aware of or sensitive to. And she was also seeing how God was choosing to use her situation as perhaps only she could to have an incredible impact on those other folks with disabilities. It's a beautiful story. I would challenge each of us to do the very same thing in this sense. Don't look at this question of suffering as something that's out there, over there, detached from life. Push back against the tendency to follow the sort of the world around us in terms of the view of who God is, as though God is somehow out there, uncaring, detached, or don't, don't also fall into the trap of thinking that, well, I'm almost embarrassed to talk about my questions about suffering. Maybe I shouldn't even bring it up. You know, may, maybe we should just dance around this subject and the questions that we have. I love the way 
the God of the scriptures, invites us to gut-wrenching honesty. This God who is not far away, but who is near us, who doesn't get angry, he weeps with us. The God who is in his own words is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit, who comforts those who mourn and catches our tears and gathers them up. That's the language of the Psalms. Let me add a note here too. We are in a worship service of a church called Sanctuary. We want this church to be a place where you can come with your doubts, with your questions, with the honest, emotional, human, real human issues that you face. We're not concerned about having all of the right words uh, in a row or always looking like we have it together. This really is about being honest before God and letting the God who is there touch our lives and to continually gain more and more perspective. Not that we will ever totally resolve the kinds of questions that are raised in the midst of this very real issue. Now, there is a word, another one of these repeated words in the Bible. It's a word that's repeated 40 times. It's the word that I believe is almost a gift from God, a technical term to help us when we don't feel like we can say anything in the midst of suffering. The word is groan. Groan. 40 times, okay? Groan is one of those words that when you say it, you feel it, right? Let's all say it together. Groan, okay? You can't say groan without groaning, okay? Let me give you a very brief tour through the uh, biblical pasture of groaning, okay? So, Exodus chapter 2, God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who, whose groaning is he talking about in Exodus? The groaning of the people of Israel who had been 400 years as what? Slaves. Now, you might want to ask, why did it take 400 years? But that's another mystery. Job 23. And of course, Job is known, so well known, as the person who has, uh, has multiple complex sufferings and losses that uh, are beyond what anyone could ever imaginably uh, bear. Job said, today, my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Psalm 5, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. It's the crying out of God. Are you listening? Are you hearing me? Do you know what I'm doing, what I'm going through? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you not responding to the words of my groaning? Those words sound familiar to any of you? Those words were on whose lips? Jesus on the cross, utters those words. The Psalms are the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. And three times on the cross, Jesus used, uses the Psalms. I'm convinced, I was convinced of this, and then later, scholars much wiser than I have confirmed this. It was very common for a Jew, especially someone like Jesus, who had known the scriptures, 
you would say the first verse of a psalm and then your, whole, your mind would have already memorized the entire psalm. I'm convinced that when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went through the whole rest of the psalm. And if you read all of Psalm 22, you realize that it resolves into a place of hope and victory. Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Here he's talking about the groaning of when we sin, when we commit evil and we don't address it or confess it or deal with it, it becomes like a cancer and we are groaning because of dealing with stuff that isn't been redeemed, hasn't been given over to God. Proverbs 29, when the wicked rule, the people groan. Just open your newspaper and that's a living commentary, isn't it? Syria, to Myanmar, to the Congo, to the Sudan, to other more nearby places, we see the groaning effects of corrupt leaders. One corrupt leader can lead to a genocide of a half a million people. When evil reigns, the people groan. Back to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians, the next chapter in Apostle Paul, chapter 5, he begins to talk about the life of the world to come. And he says, we look forward to a life, a new life. He says, in this tent, in our bodies now, we groan, longing to be clothed with a new body. And then there's Romans 8, which is sort of the pinnacle of Paul's teachings. And listen to what he says. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The whole cosmos is groaning. Not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's actually, the Christian hope involves the redemption of our bodies, a new body. Short aside, I was at Penn State. I uh, was involved in a campus ministry organization, and, and there was a girl in this organization, in this fellowship that I'd gotten to know. She's a great friend. Her name was Ruth. She was Jewish by culture, uh, Christ follower, and she had one of those personalities that sort of lit up the room. And so we're walking to Easter services through the campus to the downtown, and Ruth comes by, and she has this bright-colored dress, and I said, Ruth, you look lovely today. <laughs> she said, wait do you see me in my resurrection body. So I didn't go any further with that. But that's the hope, is a, is a new body. There's going to be resurrection and restoration. So then he says in, in Romans 8, he says, Likewise, God's Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There's a lot of groaning going on here, folks. The whole cosmos is groaning. God is groaning. Jesus is groaning. We're groaning. The Spirit is groaning. Suffering is such a big question, and it's so hard to get our heads around it, and sometimes all we can do is groan. So how are you feeling right now? Probably came in and said, I'm feeling pretty good. Now I'm not so sure. So in the next 15 minutes, I'm going to answer all the questions that I've raised, or maybe not. <laughs> what I'd like to do is this. Over the years, 
uh, in various contexts of life and ministry, uh, I've developed sort of what I, for lack of a better word, a roadmap. Not that it answers all the questions, but it's a perspective. It's a, it's a way of looking at the subject of suffering. I call it the five R's of suffering because they happen to all start, words happen to start with R's. So we're going to look at each of these R words. And uh, it involves some questions and a little bit of interaction. So if you're, if you're fading away, I want you to perk back up and, and, and really dialogue a little bit with me. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going we're to take each word and we're going to ask some questions. So the first one is this, the first R of suffering. When you are going through, think about this, when you're going through any kind of suffering, large or small, it could be a broken arm, it could be you got the flu, it could be you lost a job, it could be uh, the death of a loved one, it could be a breakup of a relationship, it could be an economic downturn, it could be a hurricane, okay? Any kind of suffering at all, you naturally long for, work towards, often pray for what? What do you want when you're suffering? You want relief. Relief, okay? Now, a couple questions. When you are suffering, do you, at times, get relief that you seek? Absolutely. Uh, you get better. You get over the flu, the hurricane passes, you get a job, whatever it might be, okay? You, uh, suffering, like the loss of a loved one, is a longer process, okay? But we have relief from our sufferings at times. Second question, do you always get relief from your suffering when you seek it? No. No, we don't. Sometimes the cancer diagnosis is treatable, and other times the movement is toward comfort. And even though there's much to do, the cure is not perhaps going to happen. So... We don't always get immediate or even long-term relief from the circumstances of all of our suffering. Now, a very important third question. From what you know of the God of the Bible, does God promise that he will always bring relief? How you answer that question tells me whether you have good theology or bad theology. Because there are some in our world, it's called the health and wealth gospel, who would say, oh, no, no, if you, if you aren't getting relief, it must be your problem that you're not praying hard enough or doing this or seeing this or going to the right whatever, okay? My appraisal of that? Hogwash. Jesus said to the disciples before he left, he said, in this world you will have affliction. Someone reminded me that there are no threats in the Bible, just promises. That was the promise. You will have affliction. If he told them everything, he would have to say things like, and by the way, the majority of you will die martyrs' death, suffering for my name. To which they would have said, oh, sign me up. So, no. There's not a promise that we will always have suffering. So here's the next R. Very often when we're suffering, and, and we don't have relief, there are times when we say, well, if, at least if I knew why. Why? Why am I suffering? Sometimes it's not clear. And so the second R is, is reasons. 
What are the reasons for our suffering? Because that why word is very natural. We, we, we are suffering and we say, why? Why this? Why now? Why me? Why not them? You know, so we, we struggle with that. So the reasons is a very natural thing to do. So let's go through some questions again. When you are suffering, do you sometimes know why you're suffering? Do you sometimes know the reason why you're suffering? Absolutely. Uh, I'm in a hurricane. Wildfires. I was abused, and I'm still dealing with the residual effects of that. Or you can say, I know why I'm suffering, because someone has just uh, accosted me or robbed me, and I'm dealing with the consequences of that. Sometimes the reason for my suffering is known because I caused it. It's my own brokenness, sin, mistake, whatever you want to call it. Now, sometimes we, we push back at that. You know, it's like the person who, who just got his second $200 speeding ticket and walks away shaking his fist in the air and saying, where is God? Can I get a break? And you feel like saying to them, um, the officer of the law who gave you that ticket did not cause your suffering. You messed up. Okay? Sometimes we know why we're suffering. By the way, when we get a ticket like that, we want mercy, uh, and sometimes the police give us justice. Okay? So, the third, the third question then, or the second question is, do we always know why we're suffering? Do we always know the reasons why we're suffering? No, we don't. I can't explain a lot of things. Why was I born in a relatively comfortable, you know, middle-class farming community and live in a world that has moderate climates and opportunities for economic growth and all those other circumstances that can be relatively okay? Why was I, why wasn't I born in the floodplain of Bangladesh where every five years I could be totally wiped out? Why... Did my wife and I have you know, six pregnancies and four healthy children, and my friend has 16 years of, of painfully struggling with infertility? Can I explain that? No. I can't explain a lot of things that happen in, in my life. But let's go to that next question again. Does the God of the Bible promise to always give us the reasons for our suffering? What do you think? Other promises that we will always know right now in this life exactly why we're suffering? No? Ask Job. <laughs> he didn't know. He didn't know. So, the question that I take out of that first two, we sometimes get relief, but not always. God doesn't promise. Reasons, sometimes we know exactly, sometimes we don't. I go to a next place and I say, well, is there something that I can be assured of from God as I know him from the scripture? Is there something that is clear, that is, that is certain? And this R is what I'm calling relationships on two levels. One is the relationship that God 
invites us to have with him. Okay? So, Philip Yancey, who has written many wonderful books about the mystery of suffering, summarized some of his learning this way. He says, God very often answers our why with a who. He gives us himself. Don't think of suffering, don't think of God in this context as a problem to be solved. Think of God as the person to be embraced. God is personal, despite what it may feel like. And so God, what does God say to us? Think of Psalm 23, 23rd Psalm. Many of you know that? That's the shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. Do you know how that goes? He gets to the place where he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because I know, God, that you're going to change my circumstances and make me happy again. No, it's not what he says. What's he say? Though I walk through the valley, I fear no evil because you are, say it, with me. You are with me. And again, David didn't just write Psalm 23 one day and say, I think I'll write a shepherd motif psalm. No, he was a, he was a shepherd who had to wrestle with the very real sufferings of being a shepherd. Scott Cairns, who is my, one of my favorite poets and writers, wrote a small book called The End of Suffering. And he was using a double entendre the end of suffering in the sense of how will suffering end, but also the end of suffering in terms of the purpose. What is the end, purpose of suffering? Listen to what he says. The God-created world is an exceedingly wild place. Its weathers and its very makeup, its famously cranky geology, remain notoriously unpredictable. Bad things happen to good people, good things happen to bad. And even setting aside the simply bad, there's also no shortage of downright evil from which the good do not appear to be uniformly protected. He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. What kind of God is this, he says. Whether or not you think the world was initially created as the shaky sphere it is, a notoriously unstable crust skidding over a roiling swirl of molten rock, there's no arguing that it isn't something of a crapshoot now. Earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, landslides, volcanic eruptions, tsunamis, famine, flood, take your pick. And lest we forget the human hand, we must remember that there's a wild mix of our own pathological history of aggression, murder, war, and genocide. So where exactly is our God in all of this? Well, the story goes that our God has descended into the very thick of it. The story goes that he remains in the very thick of it, and in mystical synergy, he collaborates with his body now and ever in appalling condescension, coming down. He remains Emmanuel, God with us. Whereas we had brought only death and brokenness to that mix, he has brought life and wholeness. grasp that a little bit. Uh, it's called the end of suffering. But then there's another aspect to relationship that is part of this 
discussion, part of this understanding and perspective on suffering. And that's the relationships with one another, thus our series. There's a communal aspect here. Uh, so, so we see the one another relationships. So we, we see in that passage in, in 2 Corinthians how we are the ones who, having been comforted by God, then come alongside one another. Part of the mystery of suffering is addressed by those around us who, who are with us. Have you ever had a friend or a loved one who is suffering and you're wrestling with the fact that you don't know what to say and then you're reminded that that's really probably okay and what you most need to do is simply to be there because your presence speaks more eloquently than any words that you might put together at that moment. That leads to the fourth R. That is what I'm calling the word response. Because even when we're not, if not, even though we're not responsible for all of our suffering, we're still responsible for our responses. Now, there are communal responses. Anyone Jewish in heritage? No? A couple? Yeah. So, so Jews have a standard operating procedure when someone dies. It's called sitting Shiva or sitting Shiva, right? Seven, that means seven. Shiva is seven. So for seven days, you're there with them. My daughter-in-law, one of my daughter-in-laws is from Saipan. Her father died last year. Um, her sister-in-law's father just passed. On both occasions, it, there's no ambiguity about what's going to happen. Nine days in their Catholic Christian community, they, they break into nine days of prayers, of meals, of caring, of coming alongside that family. It's going to happen for nine days. It's beautiful. Do we need more intentional communal responses? I think we often do a great job of coming around one another in grief and sorrow. But let's make sure we don't have anyone falling through the cracks. We need to be there alongside for one another. The Salvation Army during Katrina, you remember the hurricane in New Orleans? The Salvation Army had a slogan as they raised money to help. Here's what it was. Salvation Army, we confront natural disasters with acts of God. Now, all of you aren't seeing how brilliant that is. But here's why it's brilliant. In the world of homeowners insurance and natural catastrophes and news coverage of major problems, it's often called, the hurricane is often called what? An act of God, right? And Salvation Army is saying, no, 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 you got it all wrong. The hurricane is not the act of God. The hurricane is a natural disaster. What's the act of God? Thousands and thousands and thousands of people and millions and millions of dollars coming to be there alongside those who are suffering. That's the act of God. The hands and feet of Jesus le leaping into action. And that's God there in the midst, in the mix, in the mess with us. On a personal level, Again, uh, I think we can tend to, to lean, when we go through suffering, we can tend to lean away from God. We can struggle with becoming bitter or cynical or, or, 
or just feeling this, this sense of resentment that can build up and actually we pull away from the community that we're a part of instead of rushing toward the community. Just keep that in mind the next time you feel like running and hiding instead of being, allowing yourself to be helped by others around you. Scott Cairns again says this, quoting the, the spiritual thinker Simone Weil, the extreme greatness of Christianity lies in the fact that it does not seek a supernatural remedy for suffering, but a supernatural use for it. And he ends his book by saying, may our afflictions be few, but may we learn not to squander them. Our friend Martin Luther, this is the Lutheran building again. Martin Luther was once asked, what are the ways in which I can grow spiritually? What are the most important things that I need to grow spiritually? He said three things. Prayer, the scriptures, and the third thing, suffering. Not that you need it, but that's how you will grow. Our character grows through suffering so those are the five R's um, work in progress they are inadequate they are unfinished but they are part of the way in which over the years I've seen uh, God's beauty despite our brokenness I've seen the, the lived experience that only reinforces the Christian story that I find myself in this has been something that is, has uh, been a part of vibrant Christian communities that I've seen in action, where I see God's comfort embodied every day by people doing the wonderful and beautiful work of coming alongside one another. It also reminds me that in a church service, in a worship service of a Christian community, we will be singing psalms and hymns of lament. One time at Christ Church, we actually did a series for a month on all of the lament psalms and the ways in which God speaks to us in the middle of suffering. And we had people do artwork and poetry around that theme from their own life experience. Because sometimes we want to act as though, oh, gee, follow Jesus and everything will just be really cool. No, let's get real as God is real, as the scriptures are real as he comes alongside of us and we therefore get to come alongside one another. As we do that, we're gonna see not only ourselves transformed, but the people around us transformed. Let me give the Apostle Paul the last word. At the end of his chapter in Romans 8, Paul says these words, and I invite you to listen prayerfully as we move toward communion. He says, in face of all this, what is there left to say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that did not hesitate to spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, can we not trust such a God to give us with him everything else? Who would dare to accuse us whom God has chosen? The judge himself has declared us free from sin. Who's in a position to condemn? Only Christ. And Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Can trouble, pain, or persecution? Can lack of clothes and food, danger to life and limb? 
the threat of force of arms? Indeed, some of us know the truth of the ancient text. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. No, in all these things, we win an overwhelming victory through him who has proved his love for us. And here's how he ends. I have become absolutely convinced that neither death nor life, neither messenger of heaven or monarch of earth, neither what happens today nor what may happen tomorrow, neither a power from on high or a power from below, nor anything else in God's whole world has any power to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That deserves an amen. Lord, thank you that in the mystery and in the midst of sufferings of all kinds, that you are the constant. You are the one who comes alongside of us. May we not only reach out and experience your comfort and allow you to hear our groanings, but Lord, would you make us those who come alongside those who are in any trouble all around us, that they might see your love. Thank you that you are with us. As we come to the table where we again remember your body broken and your blood poured out for us, we know again that when all of us could never say we understand, you indeed do know us. You know what we face. And you are for us. So Lord, as we come, allow us to, to be embraced by you and then embrace one another. In Jesus' name, amen. We invite you to, uh, to come forward. All the, the stations will be up front here today. Come and take a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, take and eat. Jesus said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're living in the tension of the already of knowing God and the not yet of it all being complete. There will be a place. I just realized I forgot the fifth R. The fifth R is resurrection. It's resurrection. It's, it's the sense of being restored. That's the promise. That's the Christian hope. We're going to be restored. So we're reminded whenever we come to the table that that's our future. And we live in light of that now. So come. There'll be those to pray for you if you'd like to pray for anyone. And that's something... You know, don't just, not just today, but you may need to have a spiritual conversation with one of the leaders here at the church and say, I, I need to help, help walking through growing and suffering. Make an appointment, make a call. But if you'd like someone just to pray with you now over any concern you have, there's some, someone to pray for you. So just line up in this part of the line. So come as you're ready.